Hi, welcome to the Macabre Emporium. Let me get my emotional support cat. Okay. <laughs> to be quiet and keep the kids quiet, since he was getting anxiety and he didn't want to kill children. Gertrude's daughter even got to join in on what they considered fun. Tell us about the giant turtle. Alan never showed up, nor was he ever heard from again beyond that point. Welcome back to Macabre Emporium. This is episode 35. And if this is your first time joining us because you're some weirdo that starts in the middle of the pack, even though this is the newest episode, welcome. Welcome, Markadoodle. So, not too much exciting things have happened with us since we were last meeting here, other than us almost dying from the heat and humidity because of corn sweat, more than likely. Yeah, fuck that heat. Even though it's a natural heat wave, Indiana's worse because of the corn sweat. Mm. It makes it 100 times worse here. People mm. think it's a stu- it's a made-up thing. Look it up. I swear it is. Corn sweat. Yep. All right. But anyhow. I have nothing to talk about. I don't either. All right. We're done. See you next week. Okay, bye. <laughs> <laughs> no. So, we've been doing seasons on Diablo a little bit, and, you know, some of our listeners mm-hmm. play too. And mm-hmm. Fortunately, one of them hasn't been able to help us. Well, help us play with us, because he's been working on his own show lately. Kevin. Oh. C. Carlton. Kevin C. And I unintentionally pissed Sarah off twice yeah. playing, even yeah. though it wasn't my doing. The game gave me the uh, spectral mount that she's been wanting ever since she's heard about it. It gave it to me not once, but fucking twice. Yep. And unfortunately, it's an account bound item, so I couldn't give her the other one like I should have, as a good boyfriend would do. It's okay. I'm sure you'll get it eventually. Maybe. Because maybe if we just look up how to farm it, we can get you one. Probably just from that Legion event. Could be. Might be a Legion event specific. But anyhow. Mm -hmm. So what do you have for us this week, Sarah? I have... I don't want to give it away. Okay. It is true crime, but there is no killing. Okay. I'll, I'll just say that. What do you have? Well, I've done something like that, too. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. Let's let's test Sarah's knowledge. What episode, what can, true crime case did I cover that didn't have anybody die in it? Uh, it happened in our state. In our state capital. Tony Kritzis? Yes. Yeah? Mm-hmm. You think I wouldn't know that? No, uh, you... Tony K and the Punk Rock Boost Hey? I remember <laughs> that one. Yeah, because that was part two when we uh, <clears throat> didn't know I was... Starting to have the early onset of fucking COVID for the second time. Hey, COVID. Yep. But anyhow, that bullshit's all in the fucking past. Yeah. Well, what are you doing, though? I'm doing, I guess you could say it's weird history, but it's a story I've, like, started and stopped and started and stopped probably three times. Yeah. Because I found something else. Like, oh, this is a lot more interesting this week than this. This can wait. Mm-hmm. So I finally finished it. After probably four months of trying to do this one. But it is the Necropolis Railway. Okay. Where does yours take place? Mine takes place in the United Kingdom. Okay. Fairly close. Mine takes place in France. Well, so we're switching locations up. That was me last week. I guess so. What year? This? Yeah. This started in the 1850s. This is 1876. Ooh. (laughs) Ha ha ha! Ha ha! Normally, Sarah and I will try and give each other a generalized time period of one case as the other so we can try and fit something in 
But this time we didn't. But yeah, we didn't even do it this like we normally would, and it just happened this way. It's something we just started doing. Like, I think what January, February. Yeah. Is when we started doing that. Yeah, just so they could kind of fit yeah. together, but. That's also by us doing it. That's how I found winter home and the, the potato dumpling ore. Mm-hmm. It was just by us trying to fit time periods of things together. <clears throat> yeah. Which paid off really well with me with that bizarre fucking story. Yeah. <laughs> so before we get too far off track here, hey, since you know I'm doing a train story. Yeah. I haven't done something like that in a while. No, I lied. I did Ghostbusters one. But yeah. once again, I'm getting off track here again. Yep. You ready to get started? Yes. Are you ready for me to start? Yep. Got any more train shit to talk about? Mm, not yet. <laughs> okay. So Marie Leonide Pauline Monnier, or better known as Blanche Monnier, was a 25-year-old socialite in 1876. She was the daughter to late Charles Monnier and Louise Monnier, who had become the head of household after Charles's death. And she was also sister to Marcel, who was a lawyer. Forgive me if I say Madame Weasel. <laughs> Madame Weasel. <laughs> Instead of Mademoiselle. Because that's how Dee and fucking Jason say it. Oh, Madam Weasel. Yeah. So forgive me if I fuck that up. Madam Louise had been recognized for numerous charitable things and even received recognition for them. The Moniers lived in a mansion in Paris and were considered conservative, rich, and influential members of society. Blanche was beautiful and described as very gentle and good-natured. Being the socialite that she was, of course, she caught the eye of many men. Even with all of the glances in her direction, she was unmarried. And back then, you know that it was kind of taboo to be 25 years old and not married. Right. That was, like, you got married young back then, like right. 17, 18 because years old. Because at 25 at this time, you're probably reaching crazy cat lady territory, as you would be considered in this time period, maybe. Pretty much. But yes, highly frowned upon. So her family had no choice but to kind of set up arrangements to have her married off, basically. To her mother's peril, Blanche fell in love with an older man. He was a lawyer. He was a broke lawyer. And that went against everything her mother Louise wanted for her daughter. So he must not have been a very good lawyer if he was broke. I mean, maybe. Louise had begged Blanche to leave the man and tried everything she could to persuade him to leave him even forbidding her from seeing him, but Blanche refused. And you know when your mom, back like back then, mom said, I forbid? Mm-hmm. Like, that's a hard no. You are not doing that shit. You are not right. seeing that man. Right, you're not sending this man any pea flowers or whatever it was that looked like the <laughs> vagina from our Victorian episode. Yeah. That's what the first thing that popped in my head when you were, the like, talking flowers. about that. Yeah. She really loved this man, and it was just that simple. Right. She was in love with him and him alone, and she didn't want some random dude that mommy set her up with to be her husband. Right. In a hasty act to get Blanche to leave this older man, Louise locked her daughter in a room until her daughter decided she would cut ties with him on her own will. Okay. Then all of a sudden, Blanche was gone. Many people suspected that she had run off to be with the older man that she had fallen head over heels in love with. Or simply that she died of a broken heart. 
Louise and Marcel were seemingly in mourning at this time. Louise had said her daughter was sent to England and married a Scotsman, and they just continued on with their daily lives like nothing ever happened. Okay. In May of 1901, the Attorney General in Paris received a letter about a house in Poitiers, France. It read that there was a woman being held captive, that her living conditions were horrid, and that this had been going on for 25 years. The letter said, Dear Attorney General, I have the honor to inform you of an exceptionally serious occurrence. I speak of a spinster who was locked up in Madame Monnier's house, half-starved, and living on putrid litter for the past 25 years. In a word, in her own filth. That's all the letter said. This was the house that the Monniers lived in. Skepticism played a huge factor when it came to the police due to the affluent neighborhood and the charitable donations that Louise had given. Yeah. You know, they were highbrow society. Right. So anybody saying anything negative about them kind of threw everybody off. The police didn't know what to do. They had known that 25 years before this letter that Louise's daughter Blanche had disappeared without a trace. They assumed it was a hoax, but as police officers, they had no choice but to investigate the accusation they had received in the mail. The authorities arrived at 21 Rue de la Visitation and knocked and were greeted by Louise and Marcel. Upon entry into the home, they were smacked in the face by a gut-wrenching smell. In the need to find the source of this smell, they followed it to a padlocked room upstairs in the attic. When they broke open the door, they saw there was a window covered by shutters with thick, heavy curtains on top of that, and then a really thick layer of dust on top of the curtains. They weren't able to open the shutters without removing the hinges, so they set out to do that. Once the shutters were open and the light was coming through the small window, shock and horror filled the faces of those in the room. In a corner of the room, covered in horrifyingly dirty blankets, an eerily emaciated skeletal figure emerged. It was that of the barely but still living Blanche Monnier. She was naked and laying on a mattress of rotten straw, which had been soaked by her urine and feces for who knows how long. Right. You have to imagine, you know, if she was there for the past 25 years, there's no bathroom in there, in that room. It's just a room. Like, it's probably 25 years worth of... Peasant shit. Yeah. On top of straw. Right. Yeah. I can only imagine the skin breakdown. Yeah. How like, eaten away her skin must have been. Anyways, Blanche was clearly malnourished, having been fed only table scraps by her mother and brother for the last 25 years. She only weighed 55 pounds when she was found and rescued from the hell she had been living in. 55 pounds. That's like adding another Lugosi in Salem and just holding them. Yeah. Insane. For an adult female. There were jars all over the place in the room, and they were filled with rotten food, uh, strips of cloth that had, like, she had to wipe her ass somehow with something, right. so she would tear strips of cloth and use that. So those were in jars and on the floor. Like, yeah. One thing I had read said that, like, that, those jars in particular had enough bugs on them to fill another jar. It was like, ugh. Yeah. There were gashes in the walls that allowed rats free entry and exit as they wished, And the window, after it was inspected, was noted that it was sealed up perfectly to make sure that no smell escaped from it. So they knew what the fuck they were doing. Right. But if they were able to smell it when they first entered the house, how the hell did they keep it inside from there? I don't know. 
Blanche had also scribbled on the wall. One of the things that she had written was, Make beauty, nothing of love or freedom, always solitude. One must live and die in jail all one's life. The officers had gotten a good look at her face and the conditions around her and had, had to leave the room because they couldn't stay in there for more than about 20 minutes. Yeah. The officers went and alerted those in office above them, and the examining magistrate, Judge Dufresnel, arrived soon thereafter and ordered that Blanche be transferred to a hospital immediately. And at this time, both Louise and Marcel were, were arrested. Once at the Poitiers Hospital, many of the doctors felt as though she would not survive the night. And being as emaciated as she was, the matting in her hair um, was, like, full of food full of shit just gross yeah they wound up cutting that off and weighed it and it was almost four and a half pounds on its own so she didn't weigh 55 pounds she was closer to 50 pounds right hospital workers had asked their superiors if they could smoke inside of the room to help with the smell coming from blanche once they were finally able to bathe her they said that Blanche looked up at them with a warm and sincere smile and thanked them for her first bath in 26 years. The thought that asking, hey, can we smoke so we don't smell her, that you're favoring tobacco smoke over that? Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that the smell of her was even worse, but still, for you and I, cigarette smoke's pretty bad since we're yeah. former smokers, but still. Yeah. But this was, what, 1876? Everybody fucking smoked. Yep. But it is a hospital. True that. So Louise and Marcel stuck to a story that Blanche chose to stay in that room in the dark. Sure, okay. Yeah. She refused to see anyone, refused to eat properly, refused to wear clothing of any kind. No, she wasn't wearing clothing when she was found because she had ripped it all to shreds to wipe her ass. Right. Like, ugh, yeah. Louise claimed that she had tried to get Blanche to come to the window to get some fresh air, but with the findings from the officers... That would have been impossible because of how it had been sealed. Right. The judge didn't care to listen to Louise or Marcel anymore. And on May 24th, 1901, Louise Monnier was immediately arrested and died in prison 15 days later. Oh, unfortunately, she didn't meet the guillotine. After confessing to everything. And it's been said that her last words right before she died was, my poor Blanche. Get Bitch, please. Right. Blanche's brother, Marcel, went to trial for helping his mother the entire time and was sentenced to 15 months in prison. Later on, though, he was acquitted on the claim that Blanche was never a prisoner and could have left at any time, but chose not to. Like, he literally, because he was a lawyer, used yeah. every loophole he could. Right. Every way of saying, like, trying to blame his, his sister for being in that room. How the fuck do you choose to be in a room that's padlocked on the outside? Right. Anyways... When the news broke out about Blanche and the vile conditions that she was living in, she was nicknamed La Sequestre de Poitiers in France, which translates to the confined woman of Poitiers. While recovering at the hospital, Blanche opened windows in her room and was able to see and take in everything outside that she had been denied the previous 26 years. She repeatedly remarked, oh, how lovely it is when she was looking outside. Every single time. I met. After two and a half decades of imprisonment, you can imagine that her mental health took a pretty hard hit. Oh, I'm sure. She was diagnosed with schizophrenia, anorexia nervosa, which, not the case. She was emaciated because she wasn't being fed. Anorexia is a whole different beast. Right. And caprophilia, which I talked about in the 
Gigi Divine episode. They took, they said she took an interest, uh, an abnormal interest in poop. Well, I don't know what to say to that. Even then, in this episode, I still didn't know what to say about it. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't, I don't need, I, I don't know. And you, yeah, so all of this stemmed from her being forced to live the way that she was living for right. all that time. Despite this, Blanche was never angry and kept her calm demeanor throughout everything. She had to relearn her basic daily living skills, such as using a toilet, uh, eating with utensils. And on the day her mother Louise died, Blanche refused to meet with her brother who came to tell her the news in person. Good. Instead, she stated, I want a party when the hospital staff told her that her mother died. Blanche had never been well enough after her rescue to be re-released into society because of the mental status that she had. I imagine that she wouldn't be able to after that much mental trauma. Yeah. Um, She did show improvements over time, but her damage was too... It was just too much. Yeah. Blanche Monnier passed away October 13th in 1913 at the age of 64 while she was being taken care of in a mental health, uh, mental health facility. But that's that. Oh, and I will say, like, anybody that Googles her, you will see two very different pictures. Okay. So there's one that is constantly used as the face of Blanche, but it is not Blanche. It's a very, very pretty woman. But she's... That one is an American actress. Her name was Maud Feely. But that's not Blanche. The one of Blanche almost looks like something out of a horror movie. The actual true picture of her. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to show it to you. Yeah, when before you said that, I'm going to show it, show you. I was like, I bet this she's going to look like Zelda from Pet Cemetery. Look at her fucking hip bones, dude. Right, I get that. But it like, yeah, you yeah. turn your laptop around, like Zelda from... Pet Cemetery is the first thing that comes it, to mind. She looked like something out of a horror movie. Right. Even still to this day, that bitch from that movie still gives me the fucking creeps. Do you know that was actually a dude? No, I do now. Yeah. But anyway. Anyways. But there's also another actual picture of Blanche, and it is of her kind of huddled down, leaning against it looks like a chair or a banister, mm-hmm. while she was um, in the, the mental facility. Like, all of her hair had been cut off, obviously, because it was a giant mat. Right. And this, I'm, I'm assuming that's after the while she was in the care of the state, basically. That it, picture I just showed you? Yes. No, that was literally her laying on that bed. Oh, when they found her. When they found her. Oh, okay. That's how they found her. Yeah. But yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. Like, you tell me about the, having to rehabilitate and learn everything. I hate to say it this way, but I can't say it any better. But the children of Joseph Fritzl, unfortunately, mm-hmm. that piece of shit's still fucking alive. Is he really? Yes. Wow. Unfortunately, he needs to stop wasting our air. He needs to carry a fucking plant around to replace the air he's fucking wasting. But anyhow, um, like when the kids were taken to the police station, they were ducked down behind the seats of a car because they've never mm-hmm. been in a car before because they've been in that dungeon for 30 some years. Yeah. So that's. Those kids come to mind when you told me the story, and a lot of those kids, they're living anonymously among everybody. They had all their names changed. Yeah. Which is good for them, so people don't hound them about their story. Yeah. Dang. 
But yeah, with her, she lived her first 25 years freely. Yeah. And then she chose, I mean, if if what they say is true and that she chose to stay there because she wasn't giving up her love for this this man, then you know what? Good on her for sticking to her fucking guns, but I yep. guarantee you that ain't what happened. Right. Not when you see the way that she looks. In, no, they say no. that she chose to stay there because she didn't want to give up what she fucking wanted. Yeah. Yep. It's only twisted around what she wanted to fit their narrative. Mm -hmm. Well, he's a lawyer. Is. Her brother was a lawyer, of right, course. He's going to loophole and rearrange everything that's right. said and done to make them not look bad. Anyways. So anyways, before we get in a huge debate like that. Yes. So are you ready for this week's unicorns and rainbow-ish kind of thing, even though it's related to death? Yeah. <laughs> Also, I'm just going to throw this in there. The fact that your dad put you and I in a text, like a text group on Facebook to ask us if we read the trivia about Dune 1984 mm -hmm. until we figured out what he was talking about <laughs> was great. Did you see what it was? Uh, was it something about body bags or something? The yeah, the suits that they wore were made out of previously used body bags that they just happened to find in a hospital. I think it was. <laughs> OK, yeah. It was just your dad making us, like, reread all that. <laughs> find that out was super funny to me. It's just right. funny. In episode nine, I went over the origins of how cemeteries were created and the subtle differences between the types we see here in the United States. During my research on all of that, I came across one of the most interesting company logos I had ever seen. This logo basically compiles of a shield with a skull and crossbones with an hourglass beneath it. A scroll with a Latin phrase. Probably mortis quays vivis salus. Yep, I'm going to leave that in there for because I'm not going to try and say it again. I'm probably wrong too, but it, yeah. Which roughly translates into peace to the dead, peace to the living, all encircled by a snake eating its own tail. This would be the logo and slogan for the London Necropolis and National Mausoleum Company. Okay. After reading about this company and what it was set out to do, this turned out that it could be its own episode. So some of this might seem repetitive from that episode, but it's still important details for this week's episode. Okay. And if you haven't listened to episode nine, go listen to it now and then come back. No. <laughs> well, yeah. Listen to his portion of episode nine. Yeah. But anyway. actually just listen to the whole thing. Fuck it. And then come back. <laughs> Between the 1830s and 1850, London would see huge population growth due to the Industrial Revolution. Due to the Industrial Revolution. London's population would go from 1 million residents to 2.3 million by 1851, giving the population density of 4,266 residents per square mile. Yeah, you talked about that in episode 9, too, and that was... Yeah. No, was it episode 9? Yes. Yeah, okay. And that's that's a lot of people. Right. Because I don't remember how I drew that space up to give you a... It was from here to the park, back through the park, and then back and around. Okay. But, yeah, from here to there. Yeah. 4,266 people living in that space. That's a lot of a lot of people. And that's probably just how many people travel through this area in a couple hours. It's, I don't know, maybe more than the amount of people that travel through here. Yeah, maybe. But anyhow, along with this population growth and epidemics of cholera, smallpox, measles, and typhoid, one of the biggest culprits of these epidemics was the decaying matter seeping into the water supply. These outbreaks were due to poor sanitation conditions of the times as well. 
Three out of every 20 children born would, would die before turning one years old, and the average life expectancy was only 42 years old. So we're like an old age in these times. Shit, that's crazy. 42. Mm -hmm. That's two years older than us. That's makes you look at life a little differently. Yeah. With 25% of the population living in poverty by the 1980, by the 1880s, and probably still then too. <laughs> and definitely now in the right. 2020s. <laughs> and the life expectancy for men working in factories to the ripe old age of 22. So, yeah. 42 was probably the upper class. Wow. Yeah. With all these factors, the dead would outnumber the living quickly. If your family could not afford to have your remains or your bones be placed in ossuaries, they would be sent north to be ground into fertilizer. Some graves would also be reused with bodies already interred inside of them and stacked on top of each other with a layer of earth in between them. As it was already difficult to dig a new grave without disturbing nearby graves as most of these were left unmarked. In more crowded areas, bodies would be exhumed to free up space for new burials as well. With these exhumations, if the coffin was in good shape, it would find its way to be placed in the secondhand markets or be reused. Or it would also be broken down to be used as firewood in stoves and fireplaces in this time period. Okay. It was also common for the living in poverty to skip meals and save what they could from their low wages to avoid shame being brought onto their family for allowing themselves or a family member to be buried inside of a pauper's grave. Okay. For those that don't know, a pauper's grave or a potter's field grave, as they are also known as, or for those that cannot afford a proper burial, these graves would be left open until about 10 to 20 bodies would be interred inside of them before they were actually closed. Along with being buried in pauper's graves, your rights for having a headstone or a marker was also given up. One of these more infamous pauper's graves was located under Enon Chapel inside of London, which I'm actually going to talk about. Oh, the Enon Chapel? Yes. Okay. If you happen to hear that Lugosi decided to join us today, <laughs> he's being serious. Get him real close. He's gonna. He's being Sarah's emotional support cat for this episode. <laughs> <laughs> All right, go, go, wicked cat. First opening in 1822 as a place of worship and teachings on the first floor, but the basement was assigned to be was assigned to burials. It was in a 59 by 29 foot space, about the same size as a volleyball court. Eden Chapel became a very popular spot for the poor to be buried as the bishop of the chapel charged well below what other churches' price rates for burials were. Which I tried to find how much it was to compare and give us an idea, and I could not find a single thing about it. But I found okay. more information on this chapel than that little nugget of information that can be super helpful to understand the story. Okay. Those attending worship in Enon Chapel would complain of the putrid stench wafting up from the floor and permeating their Sunday best that they have to be that would have to be washed out or aired out to get rid of the rancid smell. Sunday school children and worshippers of the church complained of what they called body bugs being lice, fleas, mosquitoes, bot flies, etc. Any any insect that basically is drawn in by rot would blight these classrooms and swarm their ha their hair and their hats. Many other people have witnessed members of the chapel even passing out due to the noxious fumes rising up through the floor as well, but that also could be from the chemical reaction of the bodies we're having with the quicklime that we're throwing on top of it to try and keep the smell down and speed up the process of decomposition. So that wasn't really helping either. No, and then this being in the 1830s and 40s, 
air conditioning was not a thing was yeah. not a thing yet so this was happening in the dead ass heat of summer no pun intended on it you know. <laughs> with the dead outnumbering the living and making the living sick along with cigarettes infiltrating graveyards and defiling the bodies this would bring parliament to close off all urban graveyards and cemetery on church grounds for those that might not remember and then they would go on to build the seven cemeteries of london known as the Man magnificent known as the Magnificent Seven, starting in 1832. The Magnificent Seven is known as Kensal Green, West Norwood, Highgate, Emney Park, Brompton, Noonhead, and Tower Hamlets. All but one of the Magnificent Seven are still active today as it was closed in 1966 and is now a local nature reserve, and this is Tower Hamlets that is now closed. West Norwood is partially open to cremations and family burial plots and West Norwood would become the first cemetery in the world to use Gothic-style architecture in this type of setting for angsty goth teens to take pictures in generations to come. <laughs> Truth! Kessel Green is the first one of these cemeteries to be open, and it is still very active today. So, even with Magnificent Seven either open or still being constructed outside of the city limits of London, the city's dead still can't be buried fast enough for the second epic a second epidemic of cholera hitting London in 1848 and 1849, killing or unaliving 14,601 residents of London and completely overwhelming the cemeteries, leaving bodies stacked awaiting burial. Dang. Parliament sought a means to prevent the constant increasing numbers of deaths in the city from overwhelming the new cemeteries like the church graveyards in the past were. One of the proposed plans was to close all existing burial grounds inside London except for Kensal Green. They were skeptical of this plan being financially viable, and it was widely unpopular. It was a widely improbable proposal, considering it was still a private cemetery. Yeah. In 1840, an alternative idea drawn up by Sir Richard Brown, or Braun, I'm not sure, I couldn't find pronunciations, but flip-flopped on it. And Richard Spire's proposal was to use emerging technology at the time to transport and resolve this crisis. The proposal entailed buying 500 acres outside of London in Brookwood and use trains to get the dead and its mourners there. Brookwood is approximately 23 miles away from London, and at this distance, it was believed to be far enough beyond the projected growth of London. Braun calculated that 1,500 acres could accommodate a total of 5.8 million graves in a single layer, but if the practice of single-layer single layer burials was abandoned and started using pauper's graves of 10 burials per grave, meaning them stacking on top yeah. of each other, that they could fit up to 28.5 million people Holy graves shit. inside of this 1,500 acres. In his calculations, it would take approximately 350 years to fill a single layer, even though Brookwood was much farther distance away from London than the Magnificent Seven were. It would still be cheaper and quicker since the seven cemeteries require an expensive horse-drawn hearse to carry the body to the cemetery. Now, for when I start talking about the railway, I'm going to use its acronym, but the acronym is the London and Southwestern Railway. So whenever I say the LSWR, I'm speaking about the railway. Okay. Because that's a mouthful to keep saying. Yeah. Because, you know, they can't use two words, two name, two word names like most railroads around here do. But anyhow, the London and Southwestern Railway was already connected to nearby Woking in 1838. So the track work was already laid out. Brown's idea was that the train would carry 50 to 60 bodies once a day to the cemetery in the early morning hours or late at night. And the coffins would be held at the site until it was time for the funeral, whereas mourners would be brought 
would be brought to Brookwood Cemetery the next day. The shareholders of the LSWR had concerns of the impact that the Necropolis Railway would have on operations of their regular revenue trains, basically. Uh-huh. Also, Charles Blomfield, the Bishop of London at the time, wasn't in favor of this train and said that the noise and speed of the railways would be incompatible with the solemn solemnity of Christian burial services. He also considered it inappropriate that the families of different backgrounds would have to share a train and it would demean the dignity of the deceased respectable members of the community if their bodies had to be carried alongside of those who had less moral lives. So basically, this bishop didn't want hookers riding alongside fucking doctors and lawyers, basically. That's stupid. Is what it sounds like. In June of 1852, Parliament would give consent to proceed with the London Necropolis and National Mausoleum Company. Not only did Richard Brown envision the Necropolis for London, he wanted to have separate stops for each religion and chapel for each. The engineer in charge of this construction rejected this idea and recommended one separate rail line and a private branch off the main line running through the cemetery instead. This branch line, which basically, so you have your main line like we live next to. Mm Mm-hmm. And then a little offshoot where it goes off to wherever. That's a branch line. Okay. So you understand. Because I I know that stuff. You don't know that stuff. I do not. So now I do. The more you know. No. So, I mean, like, there is this little signing like down the street from us, but that's, that's just the signing. But a branch line goes off way much farther than that. This branch line would actually have two separate stations on it, though. The South Station would be for those aligned with the Church of England and the, the North Station for nonconformists to the CUE, so basically everyone else that was a Protestant. Jesus. On November... Oh, you think this division is bad now? Just wait. On November 7th, 1854, the cemetery would open finally. Its first interment would be stillborn twins from Southwark, a, a borough from London. The first service trains from London to Brookwood from the LNC, the... London Necropolis Company would actually be those disinterred corpses for relocation to Brookwood Cemetery. Okay. Regular trains that the Necropolis Railway actually did run were divided by three classes of funerals, which also determined the type of ticket use were sold as well. First class tickets would allow those who could afford them to select a grave site of their choice anywhere in the cemetery. The going price for a basic 9 by 14 yeah, huge fucking group. Nine <laughs> by four foot plot. <laughs> Nine by 14. God damn. We were talking giants back in those uh, days. The, the going price for a nine by four foot plot without coffin specifications is two pounds, being $2.50, coming up to 182 pounds today, or $234 here in 2023. That's very cheap. Second class was approximately $100 less than first class and where they were allowed some control of the burial location, but the London Necropolis Company had the rights to reuse the grave in the future if a headstone was not erected. Third class was generally, the third class was generally where funerals paid by the parish or the church and had a designated section for this in Brookwood and not granted the right to a permanent memorial even though they could upgrade to second class, but that was very rare for that to happen. Yeah. This classing of passengers even carried over to the dead while loading into the coffin wagons or rail cars as we know them here in the United States. And they would do this along with along with by religions as well. They did this to prevent mourners becoming distraught with mixing with those of different social backgrounds and religions. Wow. This practice was 
went as even as far with the deceased as well. Even the carriages showed the status of people in which they rode in. First class would have very ornate or if they were very wealthy and had enough to have their own carriage or a rail car attached to the train as well. Which we used to see that from time to time with Amtrak going by, but mm. they put a stop to allowing people to do that, which I hate. Because seeing some of those privately on rail cars was still great to see them running just because yeah. of how much artistry went into the paint schemes of those, you know? Yeah. And the work in the stainless steel ones as well. But anyhow, getting off track again, getting back on the main line of the story here. Oh, good lord. <laughs> and of course, second class wasn't as extravagant and whatnot. But whereas third class, one source said they had the ride with the dead, which is probably when the Acropolis railway trains probably first started running. Mm -hmm. And then later on, the third class probably just benches, whatever crappy rundown coaches they had available from the LSWR. I could see that. Just give them all secondhand stuff. Yeah. Yeah. The London Acropolis Company didn't own any of their locomotives or carriages. For passenger service that they use whatever belonged to the LS the LSWR railway. But they did own their own special coffin rail cars. So that was the only rolling stock that the London Acropolis Company owned was the coffin cars itself. Okay. These rail cars were segregated by class, as well on the first design could carry up to six coffins, eventually being large enough to carry up to fourteen. The LSWR employees would joke about the London Acropolis Company trains calling it the Stiff Express or the Dead Meat Train. <laughs> At the stations in London, the London Acropolis Company provided waiting rooms and chapels for each of its classes along with food and refreshments and at the cemetery when they did arrive. First and second class would have private rooms and, of course, third class gets fucked with a much smaller space with opaque glass to be kept seen from the upper classes. Like they couldn't even look at them. Nope. That's awful. Even though they're all there for the same fucking reason, there was still this class segregation. And people say the past was so much better. Yeah. And since the platforms for the trains themselves were up on the second story, the coffins would be lifted by a steam elevator to the second floor to be loaded. Before the train's departure, first class and second class were given the opportunity to see their loved ones loaded onto the train and escorted to their assigned carriages where the third class did not have that opportunity to see them being loaded on. The LSWR would run one train a day to Brookwood, leaving at 11.35 a.m. from the London Terminal, which can be still seen today, and arriving at the cemetery at 12.25 p.m. Some sources did say that it was ran daily, but most said it was only ran as needed. Mm -hmm. If there was only a single second or third class coffin that day, it would be held over until the next service was to take place. Wow. Yeah. I mean, the operating costs of that stuff, you know, like the one from Fort Wayne last I knew, it costs approximately like seventy to $80,000 just to start the fucking thing. That's insane. That's why they don't run it nearly as much, and that's yeah. why excursion tickets are so damn high. After arriving, the train would be pulled into the cemetery by a team of black horses. With the few photos that are available online, the hearse van or rail car would be at the end of the train since the trains would cross over from the main line and back into the necropolis siding, so no matter which way it was placed, it was still on the rear of the train. Now, to slightly tie in our Victorian episode, Sarah had brought up professional mourners. I did. Mm-hmm. Since weekends were popular choices for the working classes since they would not have to miss work for a funeral, 
uh, Saturdays and Sundays were their most popular days for their burials. And due to laws prohibiting theater performances on Sundays, you would find multiple professional mourners at Brookwood Cemetery. Oh my goodness. No doubt paid by the wealthy. Oh, I'm sure. I guess that restriction was for whatever leaning your religious beliefs about theater acts being sinful like the ice cream sodas were when I went over ice cream. Mm -hmm. Over time, the Necropolis Railway would decline with more cemeteries opening closer to London and the invention of motorized courses coaches being cars trucks for the most part obviously the the london necropolis company and its funeral trains would run up until 1941 when the westminster bridge road terminal in london was severely damaged the workshops and the third class waiting room was destroyed during the blitz of london do you know what that is no the blitz of london was a huge bombing campaign by the germans basically trying to level london oh no for days on end Maybe that could be its own episode. Yeah, an event like that, I would be very iffy about taking on. Why? Because of its historical significance, and I don't want to fuck that up. (laughs) Oh. But who knows? Maybe. We'll see. Because I know you have more interest in history now that I sit here and tell you about it. A little bit. Even during uh, the Blitz of London, even with several of their Hearst fans were destroyed during that. This building can still be seen today, and I tried to figure out what this building is currently being used for, which I couldn't find really an answer. Google Street View. I know what it is. What? Dollar General. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a pound store. I'm sorry. Ooh, pound 25. <laughs> nah, I forget. Uh, where was I at? You couldn't find what the store was used for I couldn't today. find what the building is used, being currently used for, except at one point it was used as office space. At one point it was also used as an autonomous winter shelter for London residents facing poverty at the time, so they had somewhere warm to go. Okay, so it's like a, a cooling center here when it's super hot. Yeah, basically. Okay. And like Google Images, it said autonomous shelter and you know, a cafe, basically. So I kind of nosed around it. Basically, it was... Uh, Pay what you can coffee store shop coffee shop that they had going, but okay. they weren't going to charge you if you probably more than likely. If you're on the train, a train that passes behind this building, you can actually see the siding still from where they would pull in and out of to load from the station. Oh, geez. still today, it is no longer connected to the main line though. Obviously, <clears throat> right. The North Station in Brookwood Cemetery is actually being slowly retaken by nature. As the South Station is now a monastery owned by the Russian Orthodox Church, housing a shrine and relics of St. Edward the Martyr, and the Angelic Chapel was converted to living quarters for the monastery next door, and it's also the visitor center for Brookwood Cemetery. In its 80 years of service, the Necropolis Railway ran with almost a perfect record until a train was hit by a truck in 1938, leaving the masonry works of the cemetery due to tall plants. The driver of the truck was not able to see the oncoming train and struck one of the hearse cars, and the truck was crushed under it. Incredibly, the driver of the truck was uninjured while the occupants of the hearse van, well, they were still found to be dead. Oh, jeez. Still found to be dead. Motherfucker! <laughs> Get her! <laughs> I was hoping that would go over your head at first. <laughs> oh, God. It's just like the fucking Bloody Mary one. Yep. Or as soon as it came out of your fucking mouth and I repeated it, I'm like, this son of a bitch. <laughs> Good job. So, 
That's the London Necropolis Railway. That's interesting. Mm. I had never heard of that. Like, I tried to find a clear-cut answer when the London Mausoleum Company came to an end. Uh It basically got absorbed by the 70s or 80s. It just switched hands so many times. Like, trying to figure it out. It's like, I'm not even trying to figure out the, the end of it. But for those tabletop junkies out there, there actually is the London Necropolis Railway tabletop game. Is there really? Yes, there is. It has a three and a half star rating from boardgamegeek.com, so they probably wouldn't change a thing. Uh-huh. Some people will get that, but anyhow. It's two to four players. It takes 60 to 90 minutes to play, and you basically build the stations, build track and whatnot, and you earn points like any other game. But yeah, there's not too much information on the game really other than it's like three and a half star rating. That's cool. Not the game, but, well, yeah. the game, yeah, but the the story was, was interesting. I think it's time we close the Emporium up for the day, Sarah. What do you think? I agree. Who the hell was that? <laughs> <laughs> I know it was an Angus, Angus Blackburn Jr. because if he ever shows his face around here, he's going to get punched in the face. <laughs> Anyways, I agree. So until next time. Remember to creep it real. Okay, bye. 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 Please check out our website at macabreemporiumpodcast.com. Join our Facebook group by searching Macabre Emporium. Like and subscribe on YouTube at Macabre Emporium Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Macabre Emporium. And if you have any stories of the paranormal, your local true crime, or weird history that you would want us to look into and possibly do an episode on, email us at macabreemporiumpod at gmail.com. Remember to follow, rate, like, review, and share whenever and wherever you can and help us grow our little baby podcast. Once at the poo... Poo... (laughs) (laughs) Once at the... Fuck, I can't say it now. Poitiers.